Please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. As you know, we're in the middle of an extended sermon series called God's Story, Our Story. We're looking at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to see how the big story of God's salvation of the world gives meaning to the little stories of each of our lives. And there's probably not a better chapter in the Bible that illustrates God's story, our story, than Hebrews 11, because this entire chapter is about stories of the lives of great men and women of God in the Old Testament who lived by faith, and we're called to imitate their lives. Well, I would love to read this whole chapter, but it's, it's too long. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Those are the, the introduction. They introduce the theme of this chapter. It's a chapter about faith in God. And then I just want to read a little bit, a little snippet of Abraham's story. We're going to look at verses 17 through 19. And so listen to God's word. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is God's word. We once got a Christmas letter from some Christian friends, and they told how their lives over the previous year had been dominated by one event. In January, their son had been terribly injured in an automobile accident. And over the months that followed, they watched him go through surgeries and a long and painful recovery and rehabilitation. And even though our friends did not use the word test in their Christmas letter, I'm sure they would have agreed that this accident and all the aftermath was a test that God sent them and their family. You know, the Bible often speaks of tests and God testing his people. Um, Here it is in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when God tested him. Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy that God led them through the desert in order to humble them and test them. James says that the trials in our lives are tests and that we are blessed if we persevere under them and will receive a crown of life that God has promised. And there are many other passages. I was talking to a college student once who had been accepted into a prestigious graduate program. There were something like 300 applicants and only 30 were accepted. Tests were used to weed people out. They were used to show which people were worthy of admission and and which were not. Um, That's one use of tests, to expose deficiencies and weaknesses for the purpose of separating and eliminating But there's another way tests are used academically, a positive way, and that is that tests are used to teach you. They're used to grow you. Both studying for the test and taking the test is part of the education. And if weaknesses are exposed, it doesn't matter because they're not intended to weed you out or cut you off, but instead for those weaknesses to be remedied. Now, here's what's important to remember as we start to look at this passage in this topic. The devil uses tests in the first way. God uses them in the second way. 
It might be the very same event in your life. The devil uses it to embitter you towards God, to make you cynical or despondent so that you cut yourself off from God's grace. The Lord, on the other hand, uses that same event as a test to teach you and to grow you in his grace, to grow you in your experience of his grace or your understanding of it. Now, it still hurts. The Bible says in another place that tests are never pleasant, they're painful. Later on, however, they produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. If Abraham was tested, you will be too. And we know that because Abraham is called in the book of Romans, the father of all those who believe in Jesus Christ. His life is a kind of template for our lives. The things he experienced in the life of faith, we can expect to experience as well. And so if you're a follower of Christ, that means you're a son of Abraham and tests will come. God wants you to know that. He wants you to be ready for them. And so let's use this passage, look at, the, look at this passage under just two points for you note takers, two easy points to remember. Let's look at preparing for God's tests and then passing God's tests. Well, we'll start with preparing. You know, you probably know that tremendous weight has been placed in, in recent years on certain standardized tests. I'm, I'm talking about like the ACT, the SAT. In many cases, they are the, the, the primary, sometimes the, the sole determiner for whether you're gonna get into a certain college or receive a certain scholarship level. And you might not be surprised to know that a whole industry has cropped up to prepare people for those tests. And if you look at some of those test prep businesses, they don't so much focus on academics. They don't teach you more algebra or more grammar. They focus on the tests. What's this test about? How is it formed? Um, how does it work? How do you understand it? How is it designed? Well, that's what we have for us in verses 17 and 18. These first two verses explain how God's tests are designed, how they operate in our lives. We might even say how we experience them. So let me read those verses again. These are important. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now the key phrase there is this interesting phrase, even though God had said to him, Now, let me tell you what I think a test is. A test is when the commandments God gives you or the circumstances God puts you through seem to contradict his promises to bless you. And so to obey God or to continue to follow him and believe in his goodness seems foolish, wrong, or even seems to threaten you with a painful loss. Abraham's test is described in detail in Genesis 22. You may remember that story. God gave Abraham a command. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. Now that command seemed to contradict God's promises to bless Abraham because God had said over and over that Abraham would be blessed through his son. See, everything hinged on this child of promise, this child of his wife, Sarah. And so for Abraham to obey God, you see, to continue to believe in his goodness had to seem foolish, wrong, 
and it certainly threatened Abraham with a painful loss. Now, this is how this usually happens in, in, in our lives. It, it happens like this. You go through a circumstance in your life that makes certain commands of God that you never really struggled with before suddenly very hard. Now, let, let me give you some examples. Um, you may not normally, for example, struggle with obeying God's command about money. You know, his commands to be generous, his commands to, to give freely and cheerfully to, to the work of his kingdom. But if you have a big financial change, obeying him can suddenly become much harder. Uh, that change could happen, you know, in, in a couple of ways. You might suddenly have a big windfall. And, and all of a sudden you're looking at this pile of money and you think, I want it all for myself. I know what I'm going to, you know, how I'm going to spend this all myself. And the, the thought of, of giving some of it to God suddenly becomes very difficult. You, usually it's the other way. Usually, you know, we have some sort of financial setback or hardship and suddenly you want to hold on to every dollar and it feels like it would be foolish to obey God. You never struggled with that before, but now you do. Or think of a Christian woman who wants to get married. She knows God's command. It's very clear in the Bible. Believers are to marry in the Lord. Believers to marry other Christians. And when she's in her 20s, it's relatively easy for her to, to trust God in that and obey that commandment of God. But after there's been a delay of years or maybe decades and she's waited and waited for God to give her a Christian man... And then here comes this nice, hardworking unbeliever and he's romantically attracted to her. That command suddenly becomes not only harder, it becomes a threat to her future happiness. If I, if I obey God this last time, I might never get married. See, ironically, it's even harder because God's promises of, of, of his goodness are ringing in your mind. I mean, promises like this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you say, Lord, I've delighted myself in you. And here's this one thing I desire. And, and now you're telling me that I can't have this thing that I want to have. Or this command, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. And you say, Lord, I've committed myself to you. Um, I've committed my business to you. I've committed my finances to you. I've committed my, my church to you or whatever it is. And now you've brought me into these circumstances that are hurting those things. Why is that? You want me to still trust you? Or what about this promise? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. You say, Heavenly Father, I have asked openly and sincerely. And now you're telling me to slam the door shut on this thing. See, promise after promise that God has made to give you the good life, and yet he has put you in a place through circumstances, or he is pressing you with a command for obedience to, to obey him, or to continue to trust him and, and call him good, and that suddenly seems so hard, maybe even foolish, maybe even a threat to your happiness. In, in fact, we can state it even more dramatically than that. It feels like a death. It feels like you're being asked to kill something good, like Abraham was. So why does the Lord do this to his children? Why, why do we need tests? What, what role do they serve in our lives? In Genesis 22, back to that test Abraham, Abraham went to, God told Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering. 
Now, what was a burnt offering? Well, a burnt offering was a particular type of sacrifice. Now, all the animal sacrifices in Old Testament worship were, in a sense, the same. I mean, you killed an animal and you burned it. But there were differences in the various offerings, key differences that symbolized important spiritual truths. For example, the fellowship offering was a certain kind of sacrifice. In the fellowship offering, part of the animal was burned. Other parts of it were cooked and were eaten by the worshiper, which symbolized God's communion with his people. In the sin offering, parts of the animal were burned. Other parts of the animal were taken outside the temple, outside the city, and were destroyed in another place far away, symbolizing the the curse and the alienation of sin and its removal. Now, the burnt offering was unique. Here's what it involved. Cutting up the animal, washing the parts, arranging them on the altar, and then burning the whole animal. It symbolized the worshiper giving himself completely to God. It was a way of saying, Lord, I want to give myself to you completely, every part of me. I want want it to be cut up by your word and washed and, and rearranged and completely devoted to you. Now, with that in mind, the purpose of Abraham's test comes into sharper focus. The Lord said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, Abraham didn't just have one son, he had another son. He had Ishmael, but, but God was putting his finger on something in, in Abraham's life. This is the son who you love. Your, your love is poured and your expectations are poured into, into this boy. Of course, there was nothing wrong with, with Abraham's love for his son. And, and there's nothing at all wrong with us loving people and, and good things strongly. And yet the bent of our hearts sometimes is that we take good things and the best motives and and we make those the ultimate things and you know we say if only I was married or if only I could um, meet my goals financially if only I could achieve a certain status you know if only I was better looking if only my kids were more successful those are all good things nothing wrong with pursuing them enjoying them God gives us those things but what does he want from us He wants us to offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices. He wants us to be cut up by his word and every part of our lives washed and and rearranged by his spirit and offered to him wholly devoted. He wants us to trust him. And one of the major ways he accomplishes that is through tests. Now, please do not get the wrong idea with what I've just said, that if God gives you a test you know, that's related to something, to your business or to your children, that you must love those things too much. That's not the point at all. Of course you love them. The point is he wants you to learn to trust those things you love the most with him. This is all about faith. It's confidence in Christ, not losing it, but growing in it. So God uses tests like any good teacher and he wants his student to learn. So that brings us to our second consideration, passing God's tests. So part of passing the tests when they come is to know these things I've just talked about, right? To know that tests exist, they're part of the Christian life, and when they happen, new circumstances make old commands suddenly hard. Tests are not punishment, but they are for building our faith and our confidence. Now you can know all that, of course, when you're in the thick of things, you feel like you're the only person going through it. You know God 
is the one you have to deal with. You have that sense. God's trying to teach you something. God's trying to get you somewhere. And so part of passing the test is that you get there. So what did Abraham do? You know, he's held up to us in this chapter as an example. And so how did Abraham pass the test? How did he get where God wanted him to go? Well, he did it by doing two things. And here they are. First, he reasoned. Look at verse 19 again. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. To pass God's test, you have to think. You have to think as a Christian. That means you have to ponder and wrestle with and work out in your mind the the greatness of God and all he's capable of. It, It doesn't say that Abraham reasoned that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham didn't claim to have figured out how God was gonna work out this difficult test he was in, but he came to a point where he was able to say to himself, God has promised to bless me through my son. And I can't understand this circumstance I'm in, but he's so powerful and he's so wise that he can even raise the dead if that's what it takes for him to be true to his word. So I can trust him with my son. See, if if you focus simply on this problem that you're in, this difficulty, this demand, this delay, whatever it is, and, and how it feels like, God is, is letting you down or feels like God is, is not being true to you, you're just going to spiral downward. You've got to look up. You've got to think about who God is in his, his greatness. You've got to think about who you are as the Bible reveals as a sinner saved by grace. You've got to think about God's grand plan in redeeming this world through Christ. And when you do that you'll realize that obeying him and trusting him is the most reasonable thing in the world. Here's my point in this. The the Christian faith is never about shutting off your mind and just kind of leaping into the dark and, and hoping it'll work out. It is reasoning the great truths that God has revealed about himself and his world and reasoning about them and, and, and coming to terms with that. And on the basis of it, continuing to trust him and worship him. So Abraham reasoned. Right? He put his mind to work as a believer thinking about God. And where did his thinking take him? Well, this is amazing. It took him to Jesus. With eyes of faith, Abraham looked forward to the centru- through the centuries to Jesus Christ. And that's what you have to do to pass God's test. Don't stop with thinking about the power of God or even the goodness of God, but keep reasoning until you get to the person of God in Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, so how on earth did he see Jesus in this test? Well, let's, let's look at the test itself. Let's think about it. It's, it's strange. God told him to, to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, immediately that seems strange because, of course, child sacrifice is condemned in the Bible as a pagan practice. Moses and the prophets condemn it. And we know that any culture that sacrifices its children is a depraved culture. And so what do we make of this command, this test that God gave Abraham? Well, there are two explanations that Bible scholars have given through the ages. They're both good explanations. I'll, I'll give them both to you. The first and oldest explanation is simply that this was a one-time unique 
event, unique test in history. And that's helpful. That's helpful because there are unique, never to be repeated events in redemptive history. And, and part of being an intelligent Bible reader is to understand that. I mean, things that happen in the Bible don't just happen all the time. God sometimes does unique things at particular key points. And so that's one helpful way to look at this. There's another explanation that's more complicated, but it's helpful. And that's this. Think of it this way. God did not command Abraham to murder his son. God didn't say, okay, I want you to go into Isaac's tent right now and strangle him. Uh, if, if, if Abraham had heard that, he would have known that's not God talking. God doesn't tell us to murder anyone. Instead, the command was to sacrifice him. And that made sense to Abraham. It made sense because in the culture of the ancient Middle East where Abraham lived, when Abraham lived, there was a common belief that God had the right to demand the life of every firstborn male as a payment for the sins of the household. In fact, you see an echo of this in Exodus 13. Remember, this was part of the law of Israel, that, it, that every, every first male animal that was born had to be sacrificed. And when you had a son, your firstborn son, that son had to be redeemed by an animal sacrifice. You see, implied in that is this very idea that, that because of sin, because of our sins, God has a right to take away anything. He has a right to demand any payment for sin. The sins of the father can even be visited upon the son. And so Abraham knew he deserved that. He deserved death. But what happened during this test? Remember Isaac asked his father, Father, um, here's the fire, here's the wood, where's the lamb? And remember what Abraham said. He said, God will provide a lamb, my son. And, and you remember what happened. It was quite dramatic. I mean, Abraham had actually picked up the knife. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord shouted at him to stop. And he said, look up, Abraham. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket was a, a, a grown sheep, male sheep, a ram caught. And he was instructed to sacrifice that instead of Isaac. And Isaac was, in a sense, you understand, just as Hebrew says, received back from the dead. And so Abraham's test, do you see what it depicts? It depicts the great work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' great work dying as our substitute for sins that, that God can demand that we be punished for. And then Jesus being resurrected from the dead to give us eternal life. Now you may say, hey, is that far-fetched? Did, did Abraham really look forward and reason by faith to see the work of the Messiah? Yes, he did. Because Jesus himself said many years later, Abraham saw my day and was glad. How does that help us? Boy, it gives us some perspective, doesn't it? God has the right to demand everything from you because of your sins, but he doesn't. And he hasn't because he's given his son instead. And so what the cross means is that you will never suffer total loss, no matter how hard your tests, because Christ has already suffered total loss for you. So in every test, you can be assured that whatever you lose will be resurrected, just like Isaac was. And all your suffering will be redeemed. And your faithfulness will be rewarded in God's great economy. 
Now, how exactly that's going to happen, what little glimmers of it we're going to see in this life, we just don't know. We have to watch God's unfolding plan, but you can be sure it will. You can be sure it will because of the substitution and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of those things, your test will turn out for your good. And so you can bless God and trust him. You remember our friends whose son was in the bad wreck? This is how they ended their Christmas letter, reflecting on that year-long test. They said, we've learned so much. If nothing else, this year has taught us that God doesn't wave a magic wand and make your troubles disappear, but he sure does hold your hand through them. See, they passed the test. They, they learned to trust God even as they saw their son in great pain. Listen, God wants to cut you up with his word. He wants to wash you. He wants to rearrange your priorities so that your life becomes a whole burnt offering to him. That sounds very painful, and it is. But you can trust him when you're hurting because Jesus suffered and died and rose in your place. Well, I wish I could end here, but I have to say one more thing. And that is that tests will only be a blessing if you're a child of God through faith in Christ. If you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then your tests will end up being a curse. They'll be used by the enemy of your souls to make you progressively bitter against God until you turn away from him forever. But it doesn't have to be that, more, that, that way. To today, this morning, ask God for the gift of faith. Ask him to give you a certain hope in Jesus Christ like Abraham had. Repent of your sins. Ask Jesus into your heart. And when you do, here's what will happen. Not only will you be forgiven, not only will you be given and, and assured a place in heaven, but right now, even in this life, no matter what test or trial you go through, no matter what difficulty, demand, or delay you face, you can know they are from God and he will work them for your good.